This episode of Dear Asian Americans is brought to you by the Quarter Pounder with Cheese from McDonald's. It's QPC time. Did your mouth just water? The QPC is the burger that breaks the norms of etiquette, the burger that napkins were made for, the burger that's saucy, drippy, oozing with flavor, always cooked when you order. So the next time you want a mouth-watering burger, order the QPC from McDonald's. It's that time again. Time to catch up with family. Time to share that home cooking that you've been craving. And yes, time to update your COVID vaccine. Updated vaccines that protect against the original COVID virus and Omicron. They're here just in time to make those family gatherings safer and extra special. Schedule your free vaccine today. Find updated COVID vaccines for everyone five and over at vaccines.gov. We can do this. Paid for by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to Dear Asian Americans, or welcome if it's your first time joining us. Uh, really, really glad that you're here. And I am talking to one of my dear friends that I've met through the pandemic, as, as many of us have, and connecting over um, some happy moments, but also certainly at the intersection of a lot of things that we are processing. Uh, turns out we have a lot in common and we have a lot of uh, commonalities in the ways that we want to create a better future uh, for our kids. And you may have seen him online. He's gotten uh, pretty popular for, for saying the right things. And sometimes people get mad at him for saying what they believe to be the wrong things. But however, it's been really, really cool to see his platform grow and and for us to continue to normalize the topics of grief and processing and, and all these things, particularly in our, our darkest times. And so really happy and honored to have my friend June Park here joining us from Florida. Hi, June. Jerry, I am a big fan, and I am so happy that you asked me to be on your platform. So I am a little bit starstruck and in awe that I'm here with you. So thank you for inviting me. <laughs> I don't I, I don't know, man. I'm, I'm, thank you for saying that, number one. But two, you've done tremendous work, I think, in particularly talking about things and topics that many of us, uh, whether you are Asian American, whether you are not, uh, it, it's often hard to talk about. And I think at the intersection or or the crosshairs of immigration, migration, being a refugee, being an adoptee, of being raised in certain religions, and of talking about grief, of loss, of death, largely, these are not things that we are taught to think about often, or at least in many, or in my case, and in many others, perhaps, taught to adopt a belief system that justifies or just makes sense of things without really thinking about how it makes sense. And so, you know, you are a hospital chaplain by day mm -hmm. and you are a also father by day, um, but also you create a ton of content. And I think that's been very, very well received by people processing things, uh, people who are trying to understand what to make of uh, particularly during the last two and a half years, um, just a tremendous amount of pain that many of us have felt uh, when it has come to people getting sick, losing people, and then how do we make sense of all these different identities? And so very, very curious and excited to learn about your path. And um, hospital chaplain obviously is not on the list of career choices that many young people have. And, um, and, and so really, really excited to learn all about that with you today. Uh, give us a better sense of how June Park, the Korean American, came to be. How did your family 
immigrate to the States when, where, and under what circumstance? Yeah, thanks for saying all that, Jerry. And uh, my my parents, they both met in New York. And my dad is from Busan, which is sort of, quote unquote, the countryside. And uh, my mom came straight to New York. My dad was somewhere else. And his whole goal was to open up a dojo in America and have it be this big, successful franchise. And he is a, a veteran of war and was a, a POW during the Vietnam War. So he was captured during the Tet Offensive, 1969. He was serving alongside the U.S. And like many soldiers there, when he was a POW, he was kept in awful, terrible, impoverished conditions and uh, negotiated for release. And you know, every person that he knew from that time um, after the war, he found out that they were all gone. Um, and they, they had all died, uh, were killed or had died in battle. And so he, of course, carries all that trauma with him when he came to the U.S., uh, having big dreams of making it here. And uh, my mom happened to meet him in New York. And I think they were probably the only two Koreans in Flushing, New York at the time. <laughs> and uh, my, my parents, they got pregnant. And the one before me, they decided they couldn't do it. So they decided to have an abortion. And then I came along and then they decided, well, we'll keep him. And then they moved to Florida because I think at the time, uh, 70s, 80s New York wasn't the healthiest place for them, they felt, uh, to raise somebody. So they came here to Tampa, uh, Florida. They started in Largo first, opened up a dojo. So I was also a dojo baby, just grew up in the martial arts school. And, uh, you know, I was told early on that I wasn't on purpose, uh, that I came about by accident. So that really kind of marked the story mm. and the narrative. It set the course for me, uh, mentally and spiritually and emotionally. And so, um, early on was pretty abused physically and verbally. And, you know, there's that whole thing, Jerry, about like our parents did the best they could with what they knew how. I struggle with that, that line sometimes, you know, because sometimes like, did they do their best? You know, could they have gotten more help? Could they have, you know, dot, dot, dot. So I also understand though, that my parents had suffered a lot of trauma. Um, my mom was, you know, abused. Her father died when she was very young, both my grandfathers died before they turned 40. Wow. Um, yeah, so I never got to meet them. And uh, my dad, he still has flashbacks, still very much carries all the heaviness. Even during the Korean War, he was about nine or 10. When his mom would cover him and his five siblings, she would. my grandmother would cover my dad and his siblings with her body when bombs were dropping. Mm. So they're carrying all this war baggage, traumatic, the poverty and uh, the cultural and all of that. And so uh, do I blame them for something? Certainly, but not everything. I understand that they came out of a war-torn, uh, trauma-ravaged place. And so um, I still have, I, there are times when I did not have a relationship with my parents, um, but nowadays continue to do so, or, or now, nowadays have since sort of reconciled. Um, but growing up, it was a very turbulent, violent, traumatic household. And I think anything that they inherited from their youth, they just brought it over to America. And so growing up, it was not easy, 
didn't grow, you know, we were poor. And when I say poor, I know that there are different levels of poor. Certainly we weren't the poorest of poor and have many privileges and advantages, but it was a, almost a broke experience uh, growing up as well. And so all of that family of origin, family dynamics, that does impact and impress upon the way that many children of immigrants are today, including myself. Thank you for sharing that. We often don't think about the things that our parents and our grandparents have gone through partially because they don't share. And I think in their, well, I have a take on it. I'm actually really curious to get your take on it. My, my viewpoint is that in particularly in the immigration experience of coming here and, and perhaps giving us new opportunities that they didn't have, there's a bit of intention in not wanting to have us be a part of the old life or the old stories so that we don't have to burden ourselves. And perhaps there's a lack of ability to process and communicate some of those thoughts. And I think we, we often talk about on this show and everybody's, um, every country has its own unique history, but from our Korean history, our, our grandparents born in occupation, our parents, uh, children of war or just right after and the economic situation in Korea, not what we think about it today. And so there's all these things that led to perhaps not even uh, it's, its correlation or even causation of a lot of people wanting to start anew in this country. And there was also a part of why do we want to give our kids more baggage, more things to think about and to talk about. And so the sort of sweeping it under the rug or just we're never going to talk about it. I, I think that's prevalent in many, many Asian American households. And mm -hmm. obviously mental health and talking about feelings and talking about experiences is many is something that many of our parents would consider just a privilege. Like they didn't have the privilege to talk about that. They were just trying to survive and trying to figure out life in this new country. Um, I mean, you, you talk to a lot of people through that now in terms of uh, perspectives near the end of life and, you know, guiding their families through certain situations. Um, how do we, how do you see that? And, and how do you, how have you sort of worked through your own journey and um, that led you to do the work that you do now? Yeah. Um, if I can bring in some of my, my practice to that conversation, when I see what my parents have gone through, a lot of their cultural habits and relational, um, I guess, interactions, a lot of that is from retained trauma. When trauma retention becomes dysfunction, it eventually just becomes culture or what is, and it becomes the air that they breathe. And when that happens, very often, there can be moments of breakthrough and moments of um, breaking through that trauma, but very often it creates a ceiling of capacity in which they're not able to break through those layers of trauma that hold them down. And so uh, trauma very often acts as almost like a squeezing chokehold in which even if a person does have moments where they find uh, self-awareness or um, uh, a healthy state of being, in general, their baseline is much reduced and much diminished because of the pain that they experience. And so my parents, they may have had a conscious wish and desire and even verbally spoke it to me like we love you we want more for you we want to give you the life that we didn't have like you were saying 
away from the old life and something newer. But if their capacity uh, is greatly diminished because of a trauma that they didn't have the resources to acknowledge or heal from, then any desire to pass on a new life will also be severely diminished. And I think it's not something that they intentionally set out to do. I don't think anyone sets out to say, I'm going to walk through the world with reduced, diminished capacity. That's not a conscious thought that we have. But unfortunately, systemically, because of mental health resources being limited, and then when you look at culturally, I think at least on two levels, much of Asian American culture looks at mental health resources and says, what do I need that for? There's suspicion. Because if it doesn't have a tangible, productive outcome, if I don't put in this unit of effort and get this unit of outcome and I can't see it, then it's not real, right? And so a lot of our work ethic is based on outcome, based on dollars, based on titles. But for mental health resources, that doesn't seem to have a real tangible outcome, quote unquote. And so there is some suspicion, at least from some Asian American cultures, towards uh, mental health resources because I can't see what I'm getting. But then the other side of that is also there is a rightful distrust of medical institutions uh, because of the way some Asian Americans are treated within healthcare or uh, within mental health offices or with clinicians and healthcare professionals. And so even growing up, maybe many child of many children of immigrants know we didn't have health insurance growing up. I'm sure that we should have, but we didn't. And if something happened, they might have brought out like the Neosporin or gotten Robitussin or something, but that's all we had. <laughs> you know, and to be fair, that distrust of medical institutions, that's very warranted and justified. But I say all that to say, I understand that my parents, as much as they consciously and verbally expressed, and they, I know that they wanted to give me that life, they were in many ways limited and hamstrung because of the resources that they weren't able to get and because of the suspicion that they had towards it. And so I think for any, any child of immigrants who's not only able to break through that with the privilege and resources that they now have due to the work ethic of their immigrant parents, there's also this second layer of now, how can I heal this relationship that I wish that I had with my parents? Like, should I even try? Should I draw boundaries? Is it worth the effort? Uh, because they didn't have the resources. And so for a lot of us, there's, for me, speaking for me, there's a lot of reparenting of myself, but maybe even if I even dare to say this, like reparenting of my parents, you know, because they didn't get all those resources. And so I know that my parents, there's going to be a certain threshold or a limit to how much they can express themselves, to how much they can actually provide and offer me what they really want. And for every child of immigrants, it's going to be an individual choice of, do you want to reinvest that back into your parents? Or is it so far gone that you, it's more wise to choose boundaries? And that's going to be different for everybody. So um, I do very much... Um, sense that my parents wanted the best for me and wanted more for me. And there's also um, despondency, sometimes anger, sometimes um, pessimism, sometimes just a sense of emptiness that they couldn't do it. And I'm, I'm trying to balance that kind of like, I know that they didn't have the wherewithal and the resources. And at the same time, I, because of that, there is definitely missing connection there too. That's a lot. And I I think now we have some of the words to think about these things, right? And look at our parents as human beings too, and not these 
godlike figures in our lives. And when you're, when we're young and, and, you know, you and I both have toddlers, you know, we, we transition from our kids believing everything we tell them to having thoughts of their own. And at some point having critical thoughts of ourselves. And I, I think for me, it's the, the older I got. And certainly when I became a parent, just having a lot more empathy of some of the things that they went through, but at the same time, not being angry, but just being honest about some of the things that I wish had been a little bit different, particularly about the way that we talked about certain things. And how did you come across the idea of studying this and, and being a student of processing? Because um, again, I, I, I joked a little earlier, like, being a hospital chaplain is not on anybody's list of things that you want to do. It is importantly critical work. Mm-hmm. And and now you you have this platform, you've been featured on today.com and you're writing a book about it. And um, it's been tremendously helpful uh, to many friends that I know personally and, and many people far beyond that. How did you translate or how did you stumble or choose this path as a field of study and a field of work? You know, so I was uh, a pastor for about seven years. And when I did that work, man, I just never really fit in. I felt like an oddball. I was, I really tried hard uh, at, it was like youth and college ministry. And I grew up an atheist, but when I jumped into this sort of evangelical Protestant world of church, I had made a lot of assumptions that turned out not to be true. And what I eventually heard the message was, uh, I thought I entered the church space to love more, but it sounded like all the church people were saying, you got to love these people less. That's the message that I kept getting. And you better do this or else. And so I kept trying and I thought, well, maybe then I can at least from behind closed doors, behind the scenes, I'll be this undercover person inside the church and just help as much as I can the church folks, even if I don't agree with the dogma and the doctrine, I can at least be this like double agent or something. And that just took a toll. And the, the place that I was at was so toxic. I was at another church, the second one, that was a much better situation, but I realized this is still not for me. So when I got into chaplaincy, I had heard about it during my pastoral ministry. And I was like, what is a chaplain? And somebody said, well, it's kind of like a priest, but who works at the hospital but you don't preach anything. <laughs> You're just a presence there. And I thought, dang, that sounds awesome. That's <laughs> And it's like, also the Masters of Divinity that I got from seminary, I was like, well, that's like the only other thing I can do with it. <laughs> there's an old joke with seminarian. There's like, M div, it's more like M don't. <laughs> you know, there's not a whole lot it's qualified for. But um, I got into it and um, it's like a six month internship. Um, thank God for my wife. Cause I didn't get paid for that internship. And then they select like five people every six months or something. I was very lucky to get in then a year long residency, all of it accredited. And they select five people a year for that. Again, very lucky, uh, to get in. And so, um, when I started working at the hospital, man, my first week, I was like, this is what I've always wanted to do. And the way I found that out was, My first clinical shift, because in in the training or in the education, they have basically classes and then you do clinicals. So clinicals are on the floor and I'm shadowing uh, a very experienced chaplain. And I watched someone die in the emergency department. 
They did everything that they could to resuscitate him, and uh, he didn't make it. And then I went with this chaplain to accompany a physician to break the news to the family in a private waiting room. And when they broke the news to this family, of course, this family uh, became extremely distressed. I mean, the reaction that we would expect. And um, the chaplain that I was shadowing, she offered just incredible care. Sort of after the doctor breaks the news, they answer questions and they go and the chaplain sort of stays to offer support. And, you know, chaplains, we read the room. Um, if they don't want us to stay, that's okay. We go. Uh, but this family did want us to stay. And the way that she, this chaplain, offered care, I mean, was just incredible. Didn't preach anything. Wasn't there to, you know, impart theology. Was just there. And that's the difference between a chaplain and a pastor. A, a pastor will, will preach, but a chaplain is a presence. And... Um, she gave me an opportunity to also speak because it, it, the family more started coming. And so we kind of split duties. And as I was offering care and just listening to the story of this person who died, and that's really what they wanted was just somebody to, they wanted to share about his life and just whichever way the conversation goes, we're there for them. However, they want to vent and express their grief. Um, that very first clinical, I knew that I belonged in that room and you know, not to make it about me because it is about our patients and their families, but uh, I knew at that moment that's what I wanted to do. And to be the voice and even the ears and eyes that I didn't get when I was younger. Um, to sort of be the space and hold that space that I didn't always have growing up. And it's been seven years now, and uh, I love it even more today than when I started. Um, and it's a hard and heavy role. Um, and it's not for everyone, but, uh, man, I, I, I love the work, Jerry, and it's such sacred access that I get. And, um, yeah, yeah, I love it. I, I really do. I think one of the first questions that I thought myself once I discovered your content and, and you, and then we started chatting is, I hope he takes care of himself. And I'm mm. sure other people think that too, because you go to work not knowing what you're going to face that day in specific, but broadly speaking, you're going to have to talk to a lot of family members of people who are either going through or about to face um, a, a loss in their lives. And as you just mentioned, you're, you have to be extremely emotionally aware of your surroundings, have it in uh, very high EQ and just have that sixth sense. Um, how, how do you take care of yourself? Um, we get, we get a clue on your Instagram and, and that is, uh, your, your, your beautiful daughter. And then you spend a tremendous amount of time with her doing fun things. But, um, how do you, how have you learned to remain optimistic perhaps, or is there even optimism in the work that you do? And, and how do you take care of yourself? And then as a, as, as a follow-up, how can we um, also learn from some of the things that you're doing to take care of yourself when the job seems um, heavy at times? Yeah, thank you, Jerry, for acknowledging that. I think I can give you like a technical answer, but also like the honest personal answer. <laughs> I think the honest personal answer is I, I'm not always good about taking care of myself. 
and it's not that I don't want to, it's that sometimes, um, you know, those who are in helper type roles or this sort of role where we're serving people and giving ourselves away, I think by default, we just forget about ourselves sometimes. And that's not always a good place to be. There's, there's a kind of a caregiver stretch and a caregiver fatigue that happens. And, and uh, especially, I can speak for myself, but I think I'm also speaking at least culturally for some Asian Americans, there is a tendency for us, for me, to give myself away and to defer and defer and to say yes to a thousand things and not really take care of myself. And uh, the people-pleasing tendency, I mean, there is something good in that and that I want to serve, but the other edge of that sword is is that uh, I spend myself too much. And so the honest personal answer is I, I don't always take care of myself like I should. I think the first year that I was doing the training, we did a self-care test. And I think on a scale of one to 10, I was like a two or three, <laughs> 10 being the best. Um, yeah, two or three. And, you know, on top of that, the work that we do, how easy is it to take care of ourselves really? Because the work we do is impossible, you know? A year ago, we survived the Delta variant, and we were seeing dozens of people die a day, you know? We probably all, not just chaplains, but all healthcare professionals during that time, I'm sure, have some kind of PTSD from that. And, you know, and I've, in the last seven years, I've lost my faith at least twice, I'm sure several times, and I've come back, but each time I came back different and changed, you know? But I've said it before, I guess the technical answer, but this is also a personal answer, is that I couldn't do this work without the other chaplains. You know, I've made this joke so many times that, you know, chaplains make the best chaplains. <laughs> you know, they really do. I'm just glad that we get to process with each other and pause between visits and we got each other's back and I couldn't do this without them. And, uh, you know, we're given space and permission to, after a particularly difficult visit, we can get with another chaplain and just process that out. And we hold each other up. And so this is, none of the work that we can do, none of the work we do can be done alone. You know, uh, justice work, protesting, um, moving the needle, making waves and change. And that's such a, maybe a cliche, stereotypical type of answer. But uh, I wouldn't want to do this work alone. And, um, you know, I think taking care of myself also means that when I take care of myself, I'm also taking care of the people around me, you know, because they're depending on me too. So um, I have been a lot better about pausing. Jerry, one thing I used to do all the time that I had, I, I still do, is I skip like lunch and dinner all the time. <laughs> it's a really, really bad habit because I'm just working straight through and I'm like, well, I'm going to eat eventually. I'm going to eat eventually. I got to see this patient. I got to see one more. I got to see one more. I wasn't taking care of myself. And I've, I've uh, in the last seven years, have collapsed twice at the hospital. Oh, my goodness. Uh, yeah. I mean, maybe the bright side of that is fortunately it was at the hospital. <laughs> so um, both times I managed to find my way to the emergency room. Um, but yeah, those, it took not once, but twice, I guess, to learn my lesson. You know, I got to eat. I got to take care of myself. I got to stay hydrated. If I need to, I got to pause. And so I, I, I say that for everyone, but for, first and foremost, I think I preach that to myself. How do you strike the balance between 
as you mentioned, your your job in comparing sort of the role of a preacher versus a chaplain, you're you're there to absorb and you're there to intake what other folks are going through and not necessarily um, preach or give any opinions when you have opinions, when you see the world a certain way, you don't get to choose the race, the gender, the faith of the people that you are there to serve. Tampa is a large city, it's a diverse community. You don't get to choose who gets to process grief that day. How do you balance that? And, and maybe there are certain interactions that you don't share with us, but it's got to be difficult being an Asian hospital chaplain in a time where things haven't been so easy for us and in, in a heightened emotional state. Um, you know, I, I'm not a healthcare professional. I have people in my family who are, and, you know, unfortunately there have been many instances of not that person. I want somebody else to help me through this process for, you know, um, I don't even want to say understandable, but for whatever reasons they have, um, how do you balance you being you as a profession and you being you as the human being with balancing objectivity versus subjectivity in certain engagements? Yeah. Wow. Jerry, that is a really, really insightful, deep, multi-layer question. I don't think I've ever gotten that question before, man. You know, uh, so Jerry, correct me if I'm wrong. I, I think I'm hearing two questions. I think one is how to um, approach it as a chaplain versus like a pastor might or like a preacher might, right? Maybe not even Maybe a that, pastor, but like just you as mm -hmm. June, right? Like you have, yeah, you, you yeah. see the world. Um, I, I think, you know, generally you and I see the world similarly in, in terms of um, mm -hmm, mm -hmm. prioritizing humanity and, and taking care of one another and, you know, things like that. And But you're there to be neutral, right? And, yeah. Um, your, your job isn't to, like you said, your, your job isn't there to speak your opinion. Your, your job is to process things for people. Um, yep. Yeah. Yeah. And that's the deeper question, I think, um, that you're asking about kind of like, here I am in the room, not to judge. Technically, I'm called the non-anxious, non-judgmental presence. <laughs> How can I be that? But then I'm holding kind of like my own stuff here. And then being that I'm in Florida, which you mentioned, uh, this, all the Florida man stories are true. <laughs> and not all, but some of the patients that I get are going to be Florida man. And sometimes they say stuff, you know, where I'm just like, I really want to push back right now, you know, <laughs> and I just got to kind of, you know, quell that, that impulse. But, um, you know, Lori Gottlieb, she, in her book, maybe you should talk to someone. Um, she talks about that struggle between when a therapist has their own opinions and then they hear their patients say something outrageous. How can we navigate that slowly without just info dumping on them or trying to convert them or <laughs> trying to give our opinion? And she wrote an article in it, the Atlantic about uh, during the pandemic um, when it seemed like uh, racial justice issues were at the forefront of the conversation. She had uh, clients who would say some really outrageous things uh, racially, politically, socially, where she wanted to say some stuff, but she as a therapist, knowing her role and her lane, very gently, carefully navigated around that and asked pressing questions and gave it back to her client. And so this is a um, probably a pretty classic dilemma 
that most, I would say, in any kind of provider role, when it comes to mental health, talk therapy, um, maybe politically when it comes to talking across the aisle and you're trying to take the high road, there's a difficulty in balancing between, um, okay, I have my stuff, my opinion, my culture, this is what I'm doing, justice work in my own time or online, but then I'm with this person, this client, this patient, and I have to very carefully serve that person without imposing upon them something uh, that will cause a disconnection or a disruption in the roles. And Jerry, there's no solution to that. You know, there's no really easy way around it. But there are times when I, as an Asian American, when I, as a clergy person, um, when I, as just a human being, have had to gently push back. And for everyone, they're going to have to pick those battles differently. For every professional, they're going to have to use their energy in ways in which, okay, I have the capital to do this. I have the energy to do it. I'm going to expend it now and gently offer pushback. And a lot of that sometimes is like a side tackle. It may be a question like, well, how did that turn out for you? You know, or what led you up to that type of thinking? Or it may be even a little bit harder than that. Like, well, what makes what makes you think that that that's appropriate to say? Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, something like that, where it's a little bit harder. Now, I guess naturally I'm a bridge builder, so I'm always going to go the gentle route if I can. Not everybody is necessarily of that disposition, and I honor all the different ways that chaplains and therapists approach that. But um, I can say there have been a couple times I can remember I can recall at least one experience where somebody recognized me from online, and I was their chaplain, and they just immediately started blasting me on all my stuff. Oh my goodness! <laughs> yeah, and oh. um, yeah, that was a that was a rough encounter, and I took the gentle route. But I asked my boss if I could go home that day because I was so I, I was pretty startled by that encounter, and uh, very very fortunately and very luckily, my boss said, "Yeah, it's okay. You can leave early today." Um, and maybe maybe I should have just taken it, been like, "Okay, you know, I, that's fine. That's whatever." But it really did shake me a little bit, mm-hmm. you know, because there's a there's a part of me that had to bite my tongue a little bit and just. I couldn't say everything that I wanted to say and push back in all the ways that I wanted to. And that's me trying to keep that professional chaplain role, you know? Um, But there are other times, for example, I had a a patient who kept cussing out the nurse. And for me, that goes completely against my values that this person would verbally abuse, whether it's somebody else in the room or a nurse or another patient or their own family member. And at some point I said, "Um, if you say that again, I'm going to leave the room and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to make sure that that's reported because I just couldn't sit by and let this patient, I know that they were hurting. I know that they were grieving. I, I know that they had a lot of things going on, but it wasn't okay for me, for this patient to keep calling this nurse a terrible word over and over and over. And so we got to pick and choose those battles, I guess, you know, and it's not easy. And I, I don't think I always do it right. And there are probably times I'm a little bit more silent than I should be. And maybe times I'm a little bit harder than I should be. Um, but I think it's upon every therapist, every activist, every educator, uh, to pick those moments. When am I going to say something? And when am I going to reveal, no, this is my value and this is non-negotiable to me. And you need to know what this is about, what I'm about. In doing the work that you do and making yourself, uh, both public and vulnerable, um, it's given you 
an opportunity to engage with the Asian American community nationally and globally outside of the, the work that you do in Tampa. What have you learned and what have you observed about this process that we're going through? And, and to somewhat recap some of the things that are a part of our situation now is dealing with intergenerational, but also intercultural changes in the way that our grandparents and parents have processed or chosen not to process certain things. There's just the general challenges of immigration and integration into cultures where we may be the only ones. I mean, when you mentioned Busan being country and Flushing being not very many Asians, a lot of people are probably thinking, what are you talking about? It's so diverse now. It's all Asian now, and it's such a metropolitan. <laughs> So, you know, a lot of time has passed, right? And, and the other part, too, is the last two or three years, we've dealt not only with COVID, but with the rise in anti-Asian sentiment. And still, uh, some things that many of us face, both in person and online, quite a bit. Um, safe to say it's been a lot. Perhaps the silver lining, it's, it's given way to conversations like this, where two Korean American dads can talk about mental health publicly. Um, some things that probably our, our parent generation would have never thought to do or even had the opportunity to do. Very curious to get your observation on what has transpired, what keeps you optimistic, and what we can continue to do to take care of each other. Just because, I mean, COVID's still not over. The hate stuff, not over yet. Will it ever be over? I hope so, but not likely. And in so many different feelings, especially as, as we, you and I raise our kids to be, uh, to try to feel, have them feel safe in this world that may not be. What, what have you seen from a particular community lens? Yeah. Jerry, can I pause just to say, uh, you're really, really good at this. Um, <laughs> I feel like I should take the Sandra O oh approach and be like, well, what do you think? <laughs> Jerry, I want to hear from you about what we need to do about this. Yeah, no, I mean, because you're in the, you know, you're one of the reasons, one of the multitude of reasons I respect you so much is because, man, you're doing that deep work. You're in the trenches, you know. And uh, when I read your stuff, I I learn so much from you. And I'm not, I'm not just blowing you up. Like I'm real serious. (laughs) Like really, I I read your stuff and I'm like, man, I'm learning here because, you know. Okay, so I'll give you some context before I answer your question. I, 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 to be truthful, I grew up with a lot of internalized racism, and for years I wanted to be white, and I was mad that I was Asian. And so I came to this work um, maybe a little bit later than I should have, and I think the main thing that I've been wrestling with, and this probably goes closer to answering your question, is unlearning a lot of the myths that I believed about Asian Americans and Asians. Mm -hmm. Um, Unlearning a lot of the stuff that I inherited that I thought was right. For example, and I'm not saying anything new, I don't think, but the model minority myth, I really thought that that was a thing. You know, just keep my head down and keep working and chugging along and I'll be fine and everybody will accept me. And so a, a lot of these myths, and this is, I think, I guess, interculturally, um, I think you may have said that word, but at least within my own community, I noticed so many of us still believe those myths about who we are, but those myths we were given to by people outside of our culture and community, uh, not within. And one thing I found um, 
especially in my community locally, and this is probably true across America, maybe even globally, is that wealthier, more successful Asian Americans um, still have this, they are mired in a concept that I worked very hard. I don't experience racism. I don't know what you're talking about. And they have left behind and forgotten the struggle and those struggling. And so they may look at people talking about anti-Asian hate crimes and be like, that's not even a thing. I don't know what you're talking about. Or that conversation is laced with anti-Blackness. And so I see more wealthy kind of up the ladder of Western success Asian Americans completely assimilated, forget about where we were and where I'm at. And that for me is an unlearning that we're all at different levels of that, you know, and we're all at different levels of when I look at some of those Asian Americans, they measure their success by, and to use a very crude term, like how white famous they are. Like my business has got a lot of white people, therefore I'm very successful. You know, I got a lot of white customers. And so that level of assimilation and that level of thinking leaves behind the struggle. So Jerry, I'm not sure if I'm exactly answering your question, but yeah. I, I think that's a lot. I mean, what you say is is true and uh, particularly in in certain pockets of our community, that becomes a very heated topic of hey, I never face any racism or Mm -hmm. why are you playing victim or you're just being weak, study Mm -hmm. harder, make more money. And I don't want to discourage people from chasing success. After all, that's what we want to do. And that's what we ought to do if we have the opportunity to do so. Yeah. But I think that I think I, I hope that the last couple of years has reminded folks that in fact, if you are at the top of whatever your craft is, that you should be more proud of yourself than your peers because you did it despite the racism and mm-hmm. despite the additional challenges that you didn't see or that you refuse to admit to. Because if you look around the room and you are the only person of color or whatever you may identify as, then that may be systemic. And I I think that our parents in their infinite desire for us to succeed in this new country and perhaps want to believe that America was more merit-based than they eventually ended up realizing it was, that you could indeed come here and, and study your butt off and that would actually be a correlation and a causation to success and which I, I think is a wonderful thing to believe in but many of us have experienced things that certainly make us believe the other way or at least the possibility that it is not always merit-based and so I, I think that's certainly true I, I think it's one of the most difficult things that um, I, I think about as a dad of how do I raise my kids to be super confident super happy and when do you teach them if at all, about racism, about the way that people treat different people differently. And to, to, to toddlers, it's not going to make sense because it shouldn't make sense that people are mean to other people simply for the way that they look. And I, I think it's all tied to it. Um, I, I, I hope that we've, we've all learned and continue to uh, educate ourselves, particularly about the realities that other people uh, face and that just because 
some of us went to great schools and have certain wealth or access or privilege that that should somehow shield us from uh, some of the ugliness in the world. And I, I often, you know, remind people sort of in this way, I don't, I don't, I have not yet read about a hate incident against an Asian American person in this country, where after finding out what school they went to, or where they worked, or how much money they had, that they were excused from the violence. Wow. There, there's yeah. no, there's no test to say, you're one of the good Asians, we're going to let you pass. Yeah. It's, it's simply based on the way we look. And therefore, you can have all the degrees in the world, you could be the richest person, and, you know, be a member of the fanciest country clubs. That's not going to protect you from race-based hate. And I, I hope that we, we can have this discussion, not just between me and you, but with other people about, if so, then how do we protect everybody? And yeah, if, if anything else, the, the fact that we can continue to talk about it, um, but it's, it's hard because, um, you know, in, in, in a weird way, June, like I wish we didn't have to talk about this. I wish your job yeah. was a lot easier. I, I wish your job was simply, you know, uh, June, the great hospital chaplain, helping families navigate through a very difficult time without this lens of the other stuff that makes it so much more difficult to, to be you. And, and to uh, do what you're great at. Um, yeah, you know, if I, if I can just yeah. add, like you were talking about, because like, we, you know, we both got kids and my daughter's two. And, you know, she's already going to have to deal with the burden of racism, you know, and she's going to have to deal with the burden of misogyny. And then if I'm to add an additional burden and then say, well, you better be exceptional and one of the good ones, and you just try as hard as you can and succeed and prove yourself, of course, like you were saying, we do want to be successful, but then to add that burden as if that will take her out of the orbit of racism, that's an unfair additional burden to add. Yeah. And then to find out that that doesn't even work in most cases or in any case. And um, yeah, I mean, I work with another chaplain who we've talked about this a lot. My fellow chaplain, he's black. And so he talks about the racism he faces. And we've had great conversations about this where what we discovered was when he enters a room, a patient's room, he's a, he's very tall. He's larger than me. He tells me that he has to shrink himself when he enters a room because he recognizes, unfortunately, that the perception is he may come off as threatening. Mm. That is the unfortunate stereotypical prejudice and racism that's against him. When I enter a room as an Asian American person, uh, I have to prove myself instantly. I got to build credibility fast and I have to almost flex myself. So he's shrinking himself. I'm flexing myself. And so there was a time and when my my supervisor shadowed me, he was evaluating me in my residency. She said, you know, you did great on your visits, but I just want to talk about the introduction that you do when you enter a room. What I was doing was every time I entered a room, I'd say, hey, my name is June. I'm a chaplain here and I'm a part of the education and, da, da, da. and I would say all my credentials. <laughs> And I would have like this long, clunky 30-second introduction. And I would talk real fast. And she, was, she would say, like, she'd ask me, she's like, why do, you, why do you do that every time you enter a room? And I had to really think about it and dig deep. And I think the psychology underneath that was, I don't want my patient and the family to think that um, I'm too foreign, that I actually have credentials, like I was hired here, I'm part of the team. Like, I want to make sure that they're comfortable with me. I'm not a person who's too distant 
or different than them. And she said, you know, you don't have to do that. It's the care that you provide. It's the counsel that you provide. That's what's going to matter. You don't need to prove yourself as if, you know, you're closing this gap between their perception and who you are. And I understood what she was saying. And there's also, I I was kind of going up against the reality very often of how I am perceived. And so do my coworkers um, who are people of color. And so that's a difficult thing, a difficult, difficult reality to address. And like you said, I wish we didn't have to have these conversations. I wish that wasn't reality as it is. And so it's a difficult line to balance between how do we tackle that and at the same time keep the core value of, but I'm still, I still have dignity and I shouldn't even have to tackle that at all. It's so funny that you bring that up because I think the situations where we preemptively let people know that we speak English, that we are not foreigners, um, almost as a preemptive measure of defense so that we're not treated unfairly is something that I I think some of us do even subconsciously, as Mm -hmm. you mentioned, that, um, again, if if, um, some of folks are listening, be like, I've never done that, and I've never had to, and maybe consider it the blessing. Um, You know, I, in in, in a similar vein, um, I remember instances of, you know, when uh, we would drive, uh, my family and I would drive with my parents when we were younger into parts that weren't so diverse. Like we'd go and, you know, get gas or something and walk into a convenience store. And like, I would purposely like speak English to my dad in public, which is something that we didn't do at home. But Mm. just I felt that if I spoke to him in Korean in whatever town we were in, that we'd be treated differently. And and almost like, hey, man, I'm just letting you know that like I speak this language and that I I deserve to be treated equally. And I, I thought about it months or years later and I was like, I what was that? Right? Like, why did I feel like I had to do that? Um, and I wish I hadn't. Um, but in, in, in a similar way, I, I think there are certain things that we have to do. And again, for, uh, I, and I totally understand for, for some of my friends too, that are, you know, um, black men that are of a larger physical presence, they don't want to come up as threatening. And so they have to either shrink themselves or be extra humorous or, you know, never really express their emotional state so that people don't deem them as as a threat. And I, I, I think that's really unfortunate, particularly when you're trying to do your job and you're there to take care of somebody. But yeah, I, I think it's 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 tough. Um we we've been through a lot, you've been through a lot the last two and a half years. How do you find optimism, both in the community <laughs> and in in our country? Jerry, I think I'm naturally an optimistic person uh, to the point of most of my family and uh, the the Korean people that I know will call me Sunjinhe. I'm a little bit naive. <laughs> I just have rose-colored glasses, so I never see red flags. And I'm always trying to explain away for people. And I think some of that is like I'm trying to be trauma-informed. I want to be um, positive about and explain for this person how they might have come to that point in their lives. And so I think naturally I'm hopeful. 
and there's part of me that's a bridge builder. Um, but to be truthful, I think the last two and a half years, maybe even before that, has been wearing down a lot on my optimism and a lot on those rose-colored glasses. And I'm trying to keep hope. And I really think at this point, because my faith has been shaken so much, and maybe because when I look at how Christianity has devolved in the American church, I have that weird, you know, that dilemma type question where it's like, well, did these people got it wrong? Or is that what Christianity just ends up inevitably leading to? You know, that's kind of the question that maybe a lot of spiritual people won't ask out loud. But sometimes I'll, I'll wonder, like, did religion just end up making them like that? Or did people who are like that flock to religion? I don't know, mm. chicken or egg type thing, right? So a lot of my hope in that has been shattered and shaken. Um, but at the same time, I think I see a lot of hope and optimism in really in amazing people that I've been able to work with. Like, like again, I'm going to blow you up a little bit, Jerry. You're one of those people and a lot of people that I've seen online that do give me hope and do keep me optimistic because despite it all, you continue to do that work in a steady way. And I'm sure everybody's got their days and everybody's got their moments. But, you know, you and, and shout out to people like, man, like, uh, Liz Kleinrock and Kathy Kang and these amazing people that I see online, these incredible movers and shakers. I, I Maybe it's dangerous to put my faith in people and they always say, don't meet your heroes. But man, every time I've met my like heroes, like I got to meet uh, Patrick Armstrong recently. Man, what an incredible person that he is and the story that he's got to tell. I got to meet, I, when I get to meet my heroes I never feel like I'm let down. In fact, if anything, I walk away like, man, I'm, I'm even more pumped up and inspired and filled up to do, continue the good work. And so I'd say my optimism is in being able to meet my heroes and finding out that they're people and they're human and they got hopes and anxieties like everybody else and that just their inspiring presence keeps me going. And just my fellow coworkers, shout out to all of them, social workers, nurses, physicians, I mean, the respiratory therapists, environmental, all these people, they're just so incredible. You know, like when people were on lockdown, you know, there was a clear striation between like, here are the people who could go on lockdown, you know, and then there are the people who couldn't, whether that was because of poverty situation or people who were on the front lines and had to keep working. In the last two and a half years, I served with people, including myself, who couldn't just do lockdown just because, you know, they wanted to. And uh, ideally, we would all be able to because we'd be given the resources, you know, um, and we would have those with resources helping, but it didn't turn out that way. And so I'm continually inspired by people who hung in there. And uh, I'm not saying that people who quit are any less or anything like that, but man, the people who just keep doing the work. I have, I keep a lot of optimism just, just witnessing them and watching them. And I'm always in awe of people online. Like, you know, you were saying earlier, Jerry, about like, I think you said something like my platform grew or something like that. I don't know. I, I started off on Instagram and these social medias with like a couple hundred people. I wrote a blog for years and years, like a couple of decades. And I had zero clicks for like <laughs> 10 years or something. And I just kept writing. And uh, now I'm, I'm, Maybe my numbers are bigger or something, but I still look at all these people I follow and I'm, I'm like constantly like amazed by them, you know, and even being on here with you, it's like, 
ear to ear smile, man. Because being in your presence, it, it's always oh, inspiring. Stop. Um, not, not <laughs> seriously. You, not not, Dead not serious. you gassed up Patrick too, so he'll 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 get a kick out of that. Um, <laughs> I I think what it, to to follow up what you said. I I think what keeps all of us hopeful are, is is knowing that there are others like us, and maybe they're not mm. in our immediate circles or immediate physical, you know, uh, proximity. But you know, I've gotten to know Liz and. Uh, where we're doing a lot of cool stuff together in, in the background. And, um, you know, she lives in D.C. I'm in L.A. You're in Florida. Patrick's in Indiana. And Kathy's in Chicago. And being being able to feel a little bit less alone, perhaps, which is a theme of the pandemic that we've continued to adopt. Um, also, I, I think not having community and not having some outlets even just to bluntly talk you know, vent or process things with each other, even over Instagram DM. I, I think without that, it, it's tremendously difficult to process some of the things that we have to see every day. And again, I, I think your day job asks you to do that a lot more. Like I can step away from stuff, right? Like I don't, that's not my day to day. And that the work that I do outside of podcasting and stuff is, isn't as critical, uh, mission critical rather in, in that sense. But I, I think I am optimistic too. Uh, one, because I have no choice but to be optimistic, the, the wow. other option is is too too sad. But I don't know. Maybe it's seeing my kids and then the way that they interact and engage with other kids that keeps me hopeful. Maybe it's mm-hmm. um, seeing seeing um, young people uh, react to some of the situations and things that are happening in the world that gives me hope. But yeah, I, I think one thing that also gives me hope and, and perhaps level set is what, so if we talk about sort of to bring everything sort of in, in full circle, if we, if we think about what our grandparents and parents went through and then the progress or the movement, we don't even, let's not even call it progress. The, the, the change in the way that we think and talk about some of these topics between one generation to the next that I think is pretty tectonic from an advancement perspective. And so what keeps me hopeful is if we can go from what our parents experience and their uh, refusal, whether it's voluntary or not, to talk about and process some of these things, to you and me sitting here talking about this stuff, then what we can do in 10, 20 years for our kids especially when the speed of change isn't linear, but it almost seems exponential. That's the stuff that keeps me hopeful because even for me to think about starting a platform to bring on other Asian Americans to talk about feelings and emotions and, and things was, was something I don't know if I would have even thought to be possible um, five, 10 years ago, right? Certainly not mm-hmm. when I was growing up because again, the message was, Keep your head down, study hard, get a good job that will buy you some sort of protection in, in this world. And um, not that I feel like I have to do this work. I'm I'm choosing <clears throat> to do this work and it's been a lot of fun, but it has been really, uh, I, I don't know what the, the right word is, but heartwarming and almost necessary in some way to, to have cross paths with people like you and some of our friends that we've mentioned and, and so many others who are doing their work in their own ways to help us normalize talking about some of this stuff because it's kind of scary because we weren't taught this stuff 
we weren't we weren't taught to go see therapists um or you know taught to go process feelings and and things like that and so um and and I think you know for you to to do the job that you do but also to be so visible about it I think is also helping to reshape shape and transform the way that other Korean men think about other Asian men think about career choices and what our roles are. Because I think it's one thing to point to specific industries or even specific jobs and saying, why aren't there more Asian people doing that? The next part is then, well, how do we get more of us to do that? Because uh, observing a lack of representation in a specific field and then you doing a job or somebody else doing a job, it doesn't happen magically, right? And and so I, I think that's another part that I think is so cool in, in your storyline um, and, and now working on a book and working on different things to help get your story out there more because one, I think it's helping our community and our kids see you in that role. Equally important is also having other folks, uh, perhaps in the micro, it's the people that you, your patients that you engage with, but in the macro, it's when you're able to share online or, or, or get platforms like NBC to cover you, then it normalizes a Korean Asian American man being a hospital chaplain, because those are roles that maybe weren't encouraged for us to be, or we don't even know that's within the realm of uh, maybe somebody else, as it was in your case, you know, maybe ministry isn't for me, where do I go from here? Or I care about people, but I want to do it in this very specific way. And so it's, it's been a hell of a lot, uh, I know, for you to process, and um, I know you've uh, deliberately taken some breaks, especially as of late, uh, to to process and to um, take care of yourself. And I, I think that's also been very, very good to see. As we wrap, I, I'd love for you to help us close out the show in the way that we always do by sharing your thoughts, reflections, and encouragement to our community by sharing anything that is on your mind in the form of a, a love letter to us. And so, June. Uh, help us close out the show and complete the letter, dear Asian Americans. Well, first, Jared, just want to say much love to you. I am on a break right now, but when you invited me to your podcast, I, I had to jump on the opportunity. <laughs> so I said no to a, a few. I'm saying I'm saying yes to you, and that's that's not to blow you up, but really because I couldn't wait to jump on this podcast with you. Um. But yeah, you know, this is something that I've, I, I'm sure that I've said before in written form, maybe even spoken form. But I think so many times, speaking to myself too, I wrap up my value in usefulness, productivity, being a pillar and a cornerstone of my community, doing justice work, activist work, that kind of thing. Um, elevating the people who may be diminished or marginalized in the spaces that I'm in, whether that's hospital work or online or in churches, um, wherever that might be. Um, sometimes I wrap all of that into my value as a person. And I think when I do that, I am really easily fluctuated based on how well that I do. And it's so difficult to separate that, to make our value non-contingent on our productivity. It's so easy to wrap that, wrap that up and have it tethered tightly 
And some of that is cultural. Some of that is from our family of origin. Some of that is just the hardness of culture at large that puts that on us. That's capitalism. That's accomplishment and hustle culture. It's all of it. And uh, I just want to tell your Asian American listeners, all the people who are listening, um, that your value, my value, our value is not, cannot be tied and never was tied to our productivity and our usefulness. You know, that is a very ableist myth. And that is an unfortunate myth that has persisted in religion, in cults, in all the work that we do. And uh, for the person who is in a hospital bed and has been there for a long time and feels like, I can't contribute and produce anymore uh, because I am bedridden and I'm stuck here. What am I worth? You are still worth who you were a year ago. You're still the same value and you will be a year from now. Um, someone who's bedridden and hurting and wounded, still the same value, still dignified, still sacred. There's no point value system that would diminish you. And so we do want to strive with everything we have, whether that's for success or for change. And we want to do excellent work and we want to produce and contribute. But I hope our value is not tied to those things. There is that Korean principle, you know, Hongik Ingan, which is, you know, our sum total value, we have to be of positive net worth. And there are literally Korean parents who will tell their kids, if you are not a positive net worth, you might as well unalive yourself. They'll literally say that because that is unfortunately the philosophy that's passed down. And while I do believe in working hard and having that strong ethic, what I also believe is that your worth is non-negotiable, that it is permanent, that you are marked by grace always. And so I hope and pray that when you see your own face in the news, and I'm talking about when we see anti-Asian hate crimes, it is easy, easy, easy to internalize um, seeing people who look like us on the news as I'm, not, I'm worth less because I'm seeing people who look like me brutalized and it's easy to internalize that. But I hope that you know your worth and value are still the same. For those of us whose lives have not turned out the way that we had hoped, or our dreams turn sideways. I hope you know your value and worth. You are so valued and loved and treasured for those in hospital beds, for those who are wounded, for those who didn't live up to their parents' dreams. You're still loved and valued. So that is my love letter to you, to know that you are loved and I love you. <sighs> That's why I love you, man. You you have <laughs> you, you have a way to um, eloquently say things and to communicate things that I think are, are so difficult for us to process, not just because we've never been taught it, but they're just simply difficult. And so thank you for what you do. I, I know I've said, you know, you, you've been a great uh, boon to the community for the work that you've done. But uh, personally, it's, it's been an honor uh, to learn from you and to learn alongside you because, again, through perhaps no fault of our own parents, uh, we weren't really taught to talk about these things. Or um, as it was in my case, it was just, hey, you know, um, death means they're going to a better place. So like, just deal with it, you know, or or, or, or to process it in, in a certain way. And I, I think it's important because I think we are 
continuing to, to, to deal with certain things, whether it was through COVID or just life happening. And then you are in a way, uh, normalizing this conversation amongst not just our community members, but amongst our friends and peers, uh, so that we can better teach our own kids how to process some of these things. And so, uh, June can be found at JS Park 3000 on Instagram and many other places. We'll put all the links to the places where you can find him. If you're curious, I learned that the 3000 means nothing at all. It's just a cool number uh, <laughs> to, to signify uh, or I guess to differentiate this JS Park from the countless other ones, perhaps. Although the, what the J and the S stands for is, is a very unique and, and different for, for all of you. But thanks so much for doing the work that you do. I continue to be amazed by just the strength that you present yourself with and um, fighting all the idiots in the comment section and the trolls that come uh, <laughs> to not only attack the content, but to attack the person and uh, to, to see you go through that um, keeps me hopeful that we need to continue in the fight and to uh, make sure that we can continue to stay loud. And so really from the bottom of my heart, uh, thank you so much for the work that you do. Thank you for saying yes to the show and always welcome to come back and take care of yourself and stay healthy and, and stay happy, especially in the days where it seems so heavy. So thank you so much for coming. Jerry, thank you for this conversation and the ones that you keep opening up. Appreciate you.